This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Boston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss cannabis and your pharmacy with clinical pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll find out about a new model to identify and predict pain with professor and dentist Dr. Etienne Vachon-Passot. We'll discover the garden-to-table trend with master organic gardener Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll learn about giving birth after 60 with Dr. Frida Birnbaum. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. A global study co-led by researchers from the University of Queensland and Harvard Medical School has found that one in two people will develop a mental health disorder in their lifetime. Scientists analyzed data from more than 150,000 adults across 29 countries between 2001 and 2022, with results demonstrating the high prevalence of mental health disorders. The three most common mental health disorders among women are depression, specific phobia, a disabling anxiety that interferes with daily life, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The three most common mental health disorders among men, alcohol abuse, depression, and specific phobia. Simply remembering events can trigger brain rhythms, even more so than when people are experiencing the actual event, says a new study from the University of Arizona. The findings could lay foundations for cognitive impairment therapy and help improve memory. The results of the study could have implications also for treating patients with brain damage and cognitive impairments, including patients who have experienced seizures, stroke, and Parkinson's disease. Neurons produce rhythmic patterns of electrical activity in the brain. One of the unsettled questions in the field of neuroscience is what primarily drives these rhythmic signals, called oscillations. Memory could be used to create stimulations from within the brain and drive theta oscillations, which could potentially lead to improvements in memory over time. As the global population grows under a changing climate, the urgency to find sustainable protein sources is greater than ever. Plant-based meat and dairy products may be popular, but they're not the only environmentally friendly meat alternatives. A new study in mice from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign suggests replacing traditional protein sources with mealworms in high-fat diets could slow weight gain, improve immune response, reduce inflammation, enhance energy metabolism, and beneficially alter the ratio of good to bad cholesterol. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. 
Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. He's active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dimension Care Alliance, and he's the Prescribe It Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health Infoway. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy, providing free, no-obligation consultations. They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. And for more information, you can visit thehealthdepot.ca to learn more. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How are you doing, man? Not too bad. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. So last time we spoke about the efficacies of medical cannabis... This time around, let's focus more on stigma and interactions. Sounds good. Yeah, I've got a great story that kind of just summarizes where where we we are and where we still need to go with as far as the stigma and the interactions uh, understanding. That is really great. It came from back in my, when I used to manage a large community pharmacy store just before I, I started the Health Depot. Mm-hmm. And we had an elder gentleman who um, was very loud and boisterous, uh, not really caring. Like, he loved to just shout out anything he needed, uh, anything about his health. He wasn't very bashful. Yeah. Um, and you could hear him a mile away. Often, you couldn't even see him. He was coming down one of the aisles, and he's like 50 feet away. Right. And he used to scream out. He said, hey, Andy, I need my Oxycontin and Delouded. <laughs> he often mispronounced Oxycontin, right? But yeah. he would just scream it out, not caring that he was essentially yelling, I need my oral heroin pills, right? Exactly. Uh, to anyone. He would even say that sometimes when I was helping out another patient. I have to say, hey, sorry, Mr. So-and-so, I'll be with you in just a few moments. Yep. <laughs> but, well, <clears throat> just a few months before I left uh, that community uh, retail chain, he came up to the counter, didn't yell, and he whispered, he said, Andy, I need you to come here for a minute. And I, this is the most odd thing ever, because I've never right. heard this man whisper. <laughs> right. So I was like, okay, wonder what it is. So I, I walked over to him and I said, how can I help you, Mr. So-and-so? He responded, I just wanted to let you know that I haven't been taking as much of my OxyContin and Delouded, OxyContin. And I said, you know, that's fantastic news. You don't need as much OxyContin. I said, well, what has been the change? He responded, he said, you see, I've been taking this marijuana oil, and I, I mentioned it was cannabinoid oil. Yep. But he said, but, but I'm not taking it to get high. And, and so I said, well, Mr. So-and-so, are you high? And he responded, well, no. And I'm like, well, there you go, yeah, right? Yeah. And I asked him how he's feeling. How has it been going uh, with the, the cannabinoid oil? And he said, well, he's been feeling dizzy all the time, kind of falling over, but he thought that it was the cannabinoid oil. And just knowing uh, this elderly gentleman, I knew he was on a lot of chronic meds, including blood pressure pills. And I asked him to sit down because he had a blood pressure machine right there and take his blood pressure. It was exceedingly low. And I explained to him that what can, often, you know, yes, Cannabis has side effects, and it can make you a little dizzy and lightheaded sometimes, especially if you have more THC, but usually CBD doesn't do too much of that. It was actually his blood pressure exceedingly low because it was making a lot of his other meds stick around longer. I explained right. that to him, and I told him I, 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 I think we, I should reach out to his doctor to explain to him that we might need to change some of his meds. He then asked me, he said, no, 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 please don't mention anything to my doctor because he'll drop me as a patient. He's so scared about 
mentioning to the doctor that he was taking CBD oil. Wow. And I told him, I said, well, if you told your doctor exactly what you told me, I think he'll be excited that you're not taking as much hard narcotics. And you're, you're, you're telling me you're feeling like you have more energy, more life and everything. So I told him, well, I'll let you. And he really pleaded with me not to mention anything until he had a chance to talk to his doctor. So I said, gave him my business card and said, if your doctor has any questions about this, because, you know, sometimes doctors aren't comfortable with that, you know, he can give me a call and just tell him that I can help guide on some of these dose changes he'll need. So eventually he did that. And sure enough, the doctor, you know, like he told me he did that. And the doctors uh, encouraged me to send out a fax. And so I did. And I recommended lowering some of his other medications. So I just think this, this example, which is uh, pretty uh, astounding, this is a few years ago, right? Uh, yeah. About three years ago, but it just shows this man was like, he was so non-bashful. He, he thought he was doing something bad, right? Taking cannabinoid oil. And he thought he was going to be dumped by his doctor, but he still did it because he heard from friends that he needed to try it because it will make him feel better, right? Yeah. And need l- less of these hard narcotics. But I, I, I think things have improved the last few years, but it just goes to show how much further we have to go to get people to understand. But the, it's really that, you know, and, do- and people in the healthcare profession, well, the main thing is we need to change people's medications. There is that still stigma attached, but we've got to treat of it just like another medication, right? It can help you out. And um, right across the board with pain, sleep, mental health um, that we discussed last week. But again, that there's all these drug interactions, we do need to adjust your other meds because it does slow down your liver that can cause other meds to increase. We just need to change them, lower them, and sometimes switch them to safer alternatives. So you need to talk to your and engage your pharmacy for that. Andy, would you say that the same needs to be said if you're taking uh, cannabis recreationally? That you, you also have to consider how it may be impacting the meds that you're taking? Absolutely. It doesn't matter. And I would say even recreational, um, I mean, you get more side effects. It's even more fuzzy if you take higher THC content, usually for the recreational. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it doesn't matter if you're taking it for medical or recreational. It's the dose of the THC and the cannabinoids in what you're taking, how much you're taking a day will have a drastic effect and impact on your medications. So I'm going to tell a little story now. So, you know, you know, I've, I, I've had a couple of surgeries this year. And yep. coming off those surgeries, I decided that maybe I want to partake in, in uh, recreational cannabis. With the latest surgery, because of the conversations you and I had most recently about the interactions, I actually wanted to make sure it was okay for me to take recreational cannabis coming out of the hospital because I was still taking some painkillers. And yep. what's really interesting to me is, and you think you can find answers all over the internet, I actually couldn't get a straight answer on it. There were some sites which were sort of conflating CBD and sort of the discussion became CBD as a treatment for like IBD and and bowel issues, but nothing about, you know, whether it was okay to have it post uh, bowel surgery. So I think this is an important discussion and I, you know, where you feel comfortable doing so, I want to sort of talk about, you know, I know that you're specifically referencing uh, medical cannabis use, but I think it also pertains to the other as well. And I, I think it would be helpful to sort of explore the types of conversations that you should be having with your pharmacist if you are taking cannabis and you are on medications. Does that make sense? So this is where we really need to uh, help to standardize over time, being that we're, we're still in the infancy with cannabis, recreation, or medical the point is that the cannabinoids, as well as the THC, in recreational or medical, doesn't matter. Let's lump them together for yeah. now. Yeah. Just think of it that way. They slow down your liver. You have these liver enzymes in your body um, that 
process a lot of medications and other substances that come into your body. It's think of it as your liver as uh, it chops things up to get rid of out of your body. Right. And what it actually slows down is there's uh, there's four in particular that uh, these enzymes that they slow down. One's called CYP3A4, uh, CYP2C9, 2C19, and 2D6. So that's getting a little very technical, but yeah. um, they process a lot of the medications in our body, especially the 3A4. Um, and what researchers have identified, and this is like you, you almost have to read into, it's kind of nerdy for a lot of people to Google this, but there's a lot of research going on in cl- journals, right, discussing this kind of stuff. And even uh, down at Harvard uh, Medical, they've, re- uh, they've already identified a growing list of over 140 medications that may be affected by cannabinoids to the point where you need to have your doses changed. So it's a growing list that they're, they're finding with these medications, and they further narrowed it down to 57 medications that, um, that can be dangerous if you do not, like very dangerous to you if you do not change the dosing on those medications or switch to safer alternatives. There's a huge example of lists. So even just yeah. pain, codeine, morphine, Percocet, and fentanyl, um, uh, four of the main medications for pain need to be adjusted. So... That's where those liver enzymes, you know, like uh, if they slow down, the medication will stick around too long. Um, antidepressants, sertraline, paroxetine, escitalopram, those SSRIs, or even the amitriptyline. Uh, a lot of anti-anxiety medications and sedatives like clonazepam, diazepam, lorazepam, zolpidem, which is Ambien. Uh, heart medications, blood pressure medications uh, like warfarin, amiodarone, even calcium channel blockers that are used for blood pressure. There's cholesterol medications, uh, Lipitor, or tervastatin or simvastatin. Seizure, a lot of seizure medications, almost all of them need to be adjusted, even antibiotics. There's so many mainstream meds that will, in essence, stick around longer. We've talked about this in other episodes, yeah. that as we age, your kidney function slows down dramatically, your liver cells, uh, enzymes slow down gradually over time, a little more moderate. But what these do is it just accelerates that, and makes it like you've had um, a really slow, extremely aged liver kind of thing, that a lot of things will stick around longer, and because of that, you should often have your doses lowered for certain medications. But then there's certain meds, too. It depends. This is where you need to talk to your pharmacist and have a good clinical pharmacist to help you out, because certain medications are what we call prodrugs, right? And mm-hmm. your liver enzymes actually need to activate the drug, so if they're slowed down, the drug won't work as well. Like, they'll be too low in your body because you didn't activate it enough and by, by the time your kidneys filter them out and get rid of them out of your body. So it kind of does both. The active drug versus the pro-drugs, you know, are, are altered. So you need to have almost all, all your medications look through a different lens that you're having your liver function a lot slower. Okay, and I think we should caution everybody. You've just listed a bunch of medications that I'm sure a lot of the listeners are on. Just because we've told you about this list, you need to go to a pharmacist and a doctor to have this yes. determined. Like, do not make the adjustments yourself, right? Like, just yes, because. Yes, thank you. Just, just <laughs> because. You do not know. A lot of these have to be at a level therapeutically for your health. Right. And you need to have. Dr. Google will not do that for you. 100%. You need to have your doctor work together with your pharmacist to slowly, and you adjust one medication at a time too, to slowly adjust to the right level for you. Do not do it yourself. Do it with your healthcare team, you know, your circle of care. Okay. So we've discussed prescription medications, but 
I would imagine it also impacts, for example, nutraceuticals and over-the-counter stuff too, right? Absolutely. There's lots of different meds, like St. John's wort is one that just yep. speeds up your liver like crazy. Um, Benadryl also is affected drastically by slowing down your liver. There's lots of medication, which is diphenhydramine. A lot of people use for allergic reactions. There's lots of over-the-counter meds you need to have analyzed as well but, uh, and mentioned to your pharmacist. It's like this, that stigma still needs to go a long way where people should be openly about it. It's like it's uh, healthier, better for you pain medication often, medical cannabis. So mentioned to you, you take medical cannabis. And you, you should, no one should feel concerned about mentioning that to the healthcare professional, just like healthcare professionals, all pharmacists know how important it is. And that's phenomenal, way better than taking one of those hard narcotics, right? Yep. So if you can tolerate, you know, hard narcotics have their place. If you have like bone pain, cancer pain, like extreme pain, absolutely. But for like more lower grade pains, it's like if you go straight to the narcotics, it's like trying to kill a, a fly by dropping a car on it. You want to hit it with a fly swatter instead. So it's better to use something more controlled that doesn't affect you all over, like uh, medical cannabis. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show to explain. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Jamie. It was a pleasure. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss a new model to identify and predict pain on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Etienne Vachon-Prasso is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Dental Medicine and Oral Health Sciences at McGill University. He's been studying chronic pain and brain circuits regulating pain for over 10 years, and he's coming on the show today to talk about a recent study. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's get right to it. What was this study about and what was the main result? Okay, so this study is really about chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two main results to it. So what we try to do is to really leverage big biobanks that are starting to, to pop up that are available for researchers to play with. And basically what we've been using is the UK Biobank, which is a biobank based in the United Kingdom that is about half a million people that got enrolled and participated to that biobank. And some of the questions are regarding pain, and they've got a lot of questions about their environment, their psychological profile, uh, their sleep habits, alcohol consumptions, tobacco use, etc., etc. So we can really have a good profiling of these patients. So 
two main results came out of our study. The first one is that we were really focusing on people experiencing what we call chronic overlapping pain conditions, which is basically people that will experience pain on multiple sites of their body. And these are really important to study because they're the most impacted patients most of the time, people that will have more disability caused by their pain. And what we see first is that pain is actually not randomly happening in these patients. We refer to it as a phenomenon of spreading. So basically, we see that pain will happen in proximal sites to where the pain has started rather than the distal site. So there's kind of an organization. And the second thing we did is we tried to predict this. So we tried to basically predict the number of pain sites where pain was experienced by the patients using uh, machine learning on these psychosocial variables that I were referring to. And what we were capable to do is to predict cross-sectionally and also longitudinally, meaning that we can predict in the future what will happen to the participant or the patient in this case. And we were capable to predict with relatively good accuracy the patients that will develop a more widespread pain, basically. So people that will experience pain on new body sites and multiple of them like four or five new body sites. So they were experienced either zero or pain at one body site, and it really spread it across their body. So this is what we came up with. It's a machine learning model that we applied to really make predictions about the individuals. Did the study determine why pain spreads in this fashion? Yeah. So basically, there's, there can be like a lot of different recipes that can explain why, but basically our model will pick the one that was the best here. It doesn't mean that it's the only one, but it will pick the features that were the most popping out. And these were mainly, for instance, there was sleep problem that were really good predictors of pain. There was mood, right? So for instance, we can ask questions about how often do you feel fed up over the last two weeks? How often have you felt tired or had little energy? These are the kind of questions that we're capable of predicting the spreading of pain. We had also other questions regarding life stressor. These features were also uh, contributed to the model and they were asking, for instance, have you suffered serious illness, injury, assault, or death of a close relative over the last two years, death of a spouse or a partner, financial difficulties, these are the kind of life stressor or traumatic events um, that can contribute to the predictions. And the last one that was really a good predictor was anthropometric measures, so basically measures of your body, which, which was a BMI over 30. So basically what it means is people that were quite severely overweight, there is some pressure that can be on the, the knee, for instance, and the hip just by the body weights for moving, walking, and, and proceeding to daily activities. This was also a predictor of people that will report uh, pain. Why do you think this study is so important? Actually, it can be important for several reasons. One of it is clinically speaking, uh, theoretically, this can help, for instance, to screen patients. Uh, for instance, we're trying to work with the pain clinic, tertiary care units, where patients have been on waiting lists, for instance, for a year before getting to these pain clinics and being taken care of by the multidisciplinary unit. And in this, sometimes there's decisions that need to be made, who will be prioritized, who will not. So if we were capable to have like a screening tool that can help identify the people that are most at risk of having their pain deteriorate over time, maybe that can help to manage these kind of decisions. And the second example I would like to give is outside the clinical realm, maybe more the research 
aspect. So research on pain sometimes can be um, quite pricey if we think about brain imaging or, or blood draw that are taken or intervention if we want to take uh, meditations or other kind of interventions. These studies can get quite expensive to run. So sometimes they're run in a small number of subjects. So we cannot have these clinical trials with randomizations over thousands of individuals. So basically, sometimes we end up with imbalance between the arms. Some people may have more severe pain in the intervention group rather than the control group, and this is a problem. So this can theoretically help managing right, or, or making equivalent groups between our interventions to make sure that we really measure what we want to measure into these research studies. So you're a dentist and you teach that at McGill. What motivated you to pursue this particular research topic? Yeah, actually, I'm more a pain researcher than a dentist. I was hired by the Faculty of Dentistry because there's a big cluster or big interest in the study or pursuing the study of pain because dentists sure. are really interested by pain. Yeah, except, <laughs> so, except, except with dental pain, some of it is acute, right? Like it isn't, it yeah, isn't... yeah, exactly. Totally, totally. So, so, so basically, what motivated this study is my, my background studying chronic pain. But as I briefly mentioned in the, the introduction, it's really the opportunities of having these new data sets or biobanks that are starting to be available. These are like huge efforts made to democratize data. Like everybody or every researcher can apply to have access to these data. And these kind of opportunities can really help us redefine some framework. For instance, a biopsychosocial framework for pain has been around for like a few decades now, but it was not really tuned within the same group of patients. It's like some researcher would study sleep, some researcher would study genetics, some researcher will study, uh, um, I don't know, mood and pain. And it's all a little bit fragmented. And so far it was mostly like reviews of the literature that will put together these concepts. And right now we were capable of measuring this within the same group of patients in half a million people that are followed longitudinally over time. So this is really, opportunities that were not present 10 years ago that really allowed us to push forward these machine learning models that required a lot of data to be efficient. So this is really a, it's kind of an interest slash opportunities that were available for us. I would imagine it's incredibly complicated though, because you're, you're looking at so many different uh, factors and criteria. Like, you know, like if you were, if you were isolating one, for example, like as you mentioned, sleep or, or you know, yep. ob- obesity, you know, you, you could extrapolate. But when you have so many different factors, isn't it difficult to yep. sort of sift through what's really happening? Like you're yeah, kind yeah. of talking about the fundamental interconnectedness of everything, which is actually one of my themes. But still, I, yep. I would think it's very complicated. It is. The thing is, like, there's a lot of collinearity or um, redundancy across different concepts. For, for instance, somebody that has, like, mood problem may also have sleep problems. For sure. May also uh, uh, be associated with uh, the socioeconomic status, maybe related to opportunities in life. You know, it may be related to your mood, maybe related with your sleep pattern. So there's a lot of interconnectedness. So what these models do, basically, is that it takes advantage of being able to learn by itself which one are the most important features. So basically our initial models has about like a hundred features, but that is not necessarily useful for people that want to use it. So basically we kind of, you know, developed down a, a more sparse model or a simpler model where we ended up using like only six variable 
using a trade-off between accuracy of the model and simplicity for, for being used maybe in, in, in broader contexts like um, pain clinics, for instance. You cannot have a physicians go through like 100 variables. It wouldn't be useful. Well, that, that was what I was getting at. So where do you see this going clinically? So like, you, you, yes. you've, you've whittled it down. So do you believe you've developed a tool that can be used in, in, uh, clinically? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, and that's the question we would like to assess now, because this remains somehow theoretical. In a way, we developed the model using like large existing cohort. We validated in different cohorts of patients that were also available. But the, the main thing is if we go to pain clinics, for instance, where patients have you know very complex profile that have been experiencing pain, for instance, for many years, can this really help physicians to guide decisions? Screening tool. Uh, maybe even have some more aggressive treatment in some of these patients that are more at risk of spreading, for instance. These are unknown so far. Uh, we hope so, but the model is not perfect either. It can predict with relatively good accuracy. We were happy to see that, but it's not also it's not a deterministic model. It's not because you score high on this that your pain is going to get worse, right? It's just a risk factor. So we really, really need to see how we can manage this and leverage this information in uh, clinical context, but this so far is, is remains to be done, basically. Okay, we have time for one last quick question, and that okay. is, what are next steps uh, with you in this study? Yeah, so I think we would really continue focusing on this idea of chronic overlapping pain conditions and pain spreading, but these are very heterogeneous conditions. There's a lot of people that show very different profiles of pain spreading, and we didn't really capture that in that study. What we would like to do next is, for instance, identify different subtypes of patients that will spread differently. Some people will spread in a certain type uh, that can lead to fibromyalgia, tensions, fatigue, etc., etc., while other types of patients may, for instance, spread a different way where it will more capture, for instance, osteoarthritis to the knee that will get to the hip, etc., etc., that will have maybe different clinical symptoms and that may be treated differently also. So it's really to redefine the model at a better resolutions using subtypes of patients. I think that will be our next step or our next goal. Well, we'll have to have you back when that happens. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the show today. I'll be glad to be back. That was Dr. Etienne vachon Prasso. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss garden-to-table trends on The Tonic. Real self-care means tuning in to what your body needs. If you're feeling overwhelmed, CanProv Women is a good place to start. Whether you're looking to reduce stress or anxiety, improve sleep, balance hormones through peri and post-menopause, or just feel better daily, our comprehensive formulas are designed to support your individual health goals. Your body, your health. Visit canprevwomen.ca to learn more today. Imagine a healthier and happier you. Hi there, I'm Dr. Cordial Karamantang, head of the ICU at the Ottawa Hospital. Every day, I see how important healthy habits are. And that's why I've created a course that could change your life. Do you want to lose weight, feel happier? I've got a few pointers to share with you. So why not take my course and give it a try? It's risk-free with a money-back guarantee. Visit 28dayreboot.co. That's 28dayreboot.co. Let's make a change together. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florit, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she's the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. For more information, you can always visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So I grow my food gardens with purpose. Like we have herbs and berries and vegetables. And, you know, every year I grow some of the favorites from the previous seasons that I know I can execute properly and and work in my backyard. And then sometimes I'll throw in some new plants just to see if I'm capable of doing it and just for a little change up. And then that sort of leads to what do I do with all this bounty? So we're going to discuss that today, right? We are. We're going to talk about some of the great things we can do with our garden harvest and some culinary trends in the garden-to-table space. Perfect. So if you just have a small garden, and you should probably define what that is, is it possible to create a garden-to-table experience? Yes. So even if you have limited space or you're not committed to growing a large veggie garden yet, you can still deliver a very tasty garden-to-table experience. And so most of us have the space to grow something. So if that's a windowsill, a porch, a deck, a balcony, you know, I think you should be growing herbs because Mm -hmm. herbs are a great way to wow any summer guests that might come over. And, you know, the best way to use them, or not the best, but I would say a great way to use them is to incorporate them into some cocktails and mocktails so that you sort of, it's like a savvy way to get a big punch from a little harvest. And I want you to think about flavor profiles. So basil and lime, lavender and lemon, peach with thyme and honey, and mint for mojito. And you can also kind of get creative with garnish. So if you grow rosemary, for instance, you could use those sprigs to kind of pop some of those blueberries you might be growing on. And this is just a really accessible way to start garden to table. Okay. Yeah. Entertaining. Cool. So last month, I think I, I told you that you know, when we were discussing tomatoes, that, that I exclusively grow little uh, cherry tomatoes. So let's talk about the cherry tomatoes and in the context of, of trends that are coming up, because I understand cherry tomatoes, I'm, I, I guess I'm ahead of the curve, are trendy right now. They are trendy. And I think one of the great things you can make with them and one of the most versatile dishes is a cherry tomato confit. Mm -hmm. And so what that really is, and maybe you're already making this, Jamie, is just your cherry tomatoes, lots of good olive oil, Mm -hmm. salt, garlic, fresh thyme, and then you're going to slow bake those tomatoes for a few hours. And it's just a classic blend of flavors that goes great on grilled bread for an easy appetizer. And honestly, you can't mess this up unless you burn it. The flavors just shine through. And I I don't know, it's like one of my favorite things to make and gift. Yeah, we sometimes work with a garlic confit, but with the the roasted tomatoes, uh, Naomi does this thing where she'll put in garlic and then we serve it with blocks of feta. And she also Mm. makes she also makes sourdough bread. So you put all that together. And honestly, there's not much better than that. I mean, maybe there's a few things that are better, but not much. Uh, so grilling. So I'm also the grill master at my house. So I have some ideas. But where would okay. you go? Where would you go with your garden if you were going to do some grilling? Well, at this time in 
this season, it's important to look at what we've got coming out of the garden and how to use it. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk about some zucchinis and some eggplants. Yeah. I think they hold up really well on the grill, and the grill gives them some really great flavor development. And so for, for zucchini, I like to keep it whole. And it's a little hard on radio, but let's imagine together. You're going to slice three quarters of the way down the fruit, sort of quarter inch apart, to make the zucchini look like an accordion. Okay. And in each little slit, you're going to put a tiny sliver of garlic, coat that all in olive oil and some salt, and grill it that way. Interesting. So my experience with, with with grilled vegetables, first of all, zucchinis have been banned from my garden because they take over too much, but I am, I am, I am growing eggplant for the first time. So the great thing about eggplant is it gets quite smoky, but people are reluctant to do it because sometimes it can have that bitter flavor. But a, a grill master told me, like I was inclined to marinate and uh, salt and season the vegetables before putting them on the grill until somebody smart told me, no, you put the salt on immediately when it comes off. And only put enough olive oil just to make sure it's not sticking to the grill if you haven't done a tremendous job of cleaning your grill. But then you put the, you put the flavorings on after because when it's hot, it'll suck in the delicious flavors. But if you do it before, it may burn, particularly if you're putting anything sweet in the marinade. Perfect advice. And I would add to that, if you are going to grill up those eggplants, slice them lengthwise yep. and give them a nice crisscross scoring. Yep. And that way, when you do season them after the fact, if you're doing some kind of, you know, marinade, tapenade, whatever it is, um, they can sort of really absorb all of that delicious flavor. Cool. What else is trending right now? Edible flowers have been trending in the garden to table and farm to table movement over the last few seasons. And really, that's just because they add a great pop of color. So some easy to grow and use flowers would include nasturtium, pansies, calendula. And then another trend, which you might have seen, are these backyard pizza ovens, which everyone now seems to have. Yep. And I would say, you know, this is a great way to use your garden veg and especially greens, like go outside the box. I had lots of pesto or arugula, just really load up those backyard pizzas. They're so delicious and a great way to entertain. Yeah. When I put arugula on pizza, I wait till it comes out. Like I don't like cooking the arugula on the pizza because it's so fragile, but it's delicious on top of a pizza that's already been cooked, but that's just me. Uh, Absolutely. What, what about salads? Where are you on salads? Okay. So... There is this great New York Times recipe called soft herb salad, and this is a great way to use those herbs that we talked about at the top of the show. So it's really heavy on herbs, and I think because herbs are so expensive when you're at the grocery store, they're just one of those great bang for your buck crops to grow. Grow more herbs than you think you need and make a salad like this, which is just loaded with tons of fresh herbs, a little bit of arugula, and then has a beautiful toasted almond butter dressing. Mm, that does sound good. What about make-ahead foods? Any advice there? Yes, this is a great question. So I have a really big family. So for me, it's super important to make a few things ahead so that when it comes time to entertaining, things go a bit more smoothly. <laughs> so some easy things to make ahead that, that I think are worth doing. If you're growing some onions, red onions in particular, I think making a quick pickled onion is great. They're really sweet and they add a lot to dishes, sandwiches, frittatas, things like that. Tacos. We tacos. Use, we use yes. them on fish tacos. We have we have pickled red onions in the fridge at all times. It's just a great ingredient. And then sauces are super easy to make ahead. And, you know, pesto for me is a very versatile sauce you can, you can deal with ahead of time and you can make it with different nuts. If you're dairy-free, you can swap out the umami from the Parmesan and use nutritional yeast or miso. And you can use different greens like kale, use up any 
of those garlic scapes you haven't done anything with yet. <laughs> and then lastly, homemade hot sauces are pretty impressive, fermented or not. Just, you know, be careful, wear gloves, especially if the pepper you're dealing with or the peppers you're dealing with have a high Scoville rating. Yeah, I was circling back to the pesto for a quick second. I tend to put arugula or spinach in to, to sort of mm-hmm. round it out. Because sometimes, you know, if you get a little heavy handed with the pine nuts or the Parmesan, you kind of, you may run out of your basil and then you feel like you're kind of stuck. But I find the arugula kind of almost brings out the flavor of the basil when you're making a pesto. And most people won't even know that you're putting it in. But I, I think it really makes a difference. Yeah. And if you're looking for that really vibrant green pesto, yeah. the spinach is a great go-to. Agreed. All right. So let's shift gears and talk about desserts because this is an area like Naomi does all the baking. I'm just really not good at it. And and we do. We have fruit in our backyard, but it's mostly berries. So we don't really do a ton, but maybe you can help us. What are some of the things that you can do with stuff in your backyard for dessert? Okay. So let's go back to the trend talk. And Mm -hmm. so for those of you who are on TikTok, there was a huge uptake this year on a product called the Ninja Creamy, which is basically a quick ice cream maker. And so this is good because you would take those berries, freeze them, and this machine basically has a blade that emulsifies everything frozen and makes it into sorbet, ice cream, you know, whatever texture you're looking for. I don't have one of these, but I know friends who are obsessed with them. And you know, you can also achieve this with a high-speed blender, like a Blendtec or a Vitamix. Mm-hmm. But it is very impressive. More low-tech, you can always do popsicles. Mm. I was in Portugal a few months ago and had the most delicious uh, lime and basil popsicle. And this is kind of a fun treat, especially if you're doing like a casual backyard gathering and you don't want to have a ton of plates to deal with at the end of the night. And then if you're doing something a little bit more formal, you know, head to the farmer's market grab some peaches, do an incredible cobbler, take some mint to garnish it from the garden, and then, again, make one of those ice creams and pair it with it. Cool. We have time for one last quick area. Any, anything you want to end off on? Sure. I just wanted to say, don't forget to go out there and grab some of those flowers that you're growing and decorate with them. You know, part of entertaining is creating great ambiance. So grab a cluster of small vases, add some fresh flowers, stick a little bud vase in the powder room. It goes a long way to making your guests impressed. Fantastic advice. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. That was Melissa Cameron. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market Sunday, September 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Shop local organic vendors and enjoy green roof activities and drop-in garden workshops. There's barbecue, live music, big deals, and a kid's craft zone. Fun for the whole family. And admission is free. Stop by 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? 
Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Frida Birnbaum is a research psychologist and psychotherapist in Saddle River, New Jersey, and the award-winning author of Life Begins at 60, A New View of Motherhood, Marriage, and Reinventing Ourselves, and the author of What Price Power, an in-depth study of the professional women in a relationship. She's an expert on topics such as family dynamics, parenthood, relationships, addiction, anxiety, and depression. She's a seasoned media personality and commentator who's adept at discerning psychological underpinnings of current issues and parsing the psychological profiles of various newsmakers, politicians, celebrities, criminals, etc. Notably, Dr. Frida is the oldest woman in America to give birth to twins. The mother of five, her youngest sons were born when she was 60, lending her a unique perspective on issues related to parenting and the empowerment of women at any age. Welcome to the show, Frida. How are you? Thank you so much. A pleasure to be on your show. So kids after 60, I can tell you, I can tell you this as a certainty. I am 57 and uh, two of my three kids have left. And honestly, I'm waiting with bated breath for the third one to go to the thought of having kids at 60 is daunting. Why did you decide to have kids uh, later in life? Well, you know, it's interesting uh, because the real elephant in the room here is my husband. No one interviews him and no one asks him. He's the one. He said, no one will know your age. Uh, You know, 60 hit a nerve. If it was 59, that would be a different story. So I decided to go ahead and have twins uh, without feeling uh, that I was too old, actually, to begin with. The world told me I was old. I didn't realize it till then. I thought I was young and happy and energetic. Still feel the same way. So that's why I decided I thought that it wouldn't be a big deal and absolutely did not interfere with any other plans that I did have, which were big plans to begin with. I kept going, juggling both. When you were considering having kids, did you think about like the impact on the kids themselves as having an older parents? Today, things have changed. Older parents, older mothers, middle-aged women are more prevalent in the schools, in the community, uh, than 20-year-olds. So age has become something that's more blended. Uh, you're 40, 50, and n- nothing 60 yet because we're living longer, younger. Uh, women uh, age differently today. They're slim, they're youthful, and we can't really pinpoint a finger on how old somebody is. So that has become passe. In the past, when people were getting less educated, that was more something that was more profound. Women were getting married earlier, right out of high school. 
I was told to get my MRS, but I got my PhD <laughs> instead. So, to, you know, to, you have to think for yourself. I always have. I've always had a stigma against everything I've done. I went back to school and after I had my children. You weren't supposed to do that at that time. Today, everybody does that. So, yes, the answer to your question, believe it or not, I still remember it, was it really doesn't make a difference today anymore. It's really mixed. It's more older than younger. Well, you know, to be blunt, you you focused your answer on the impacts to you, but my question was actually oriented towards the kids. In other words, you know, did you turn your mind to the fact that you were going to be an older parent and how that may impact your children? And and I appreciate, like, I'm an I'm an energetic 57 year old. I I accept that you're an energetic woman in her 60s or 70s. I don't know how old you are now, but like. Obviously, that's different than the energies you have when you're younger, and kids need certain things from their parents, and I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I find that we get together with the other parents, so there is a relationship that my children are experiencing uh, with seeing us mingling and uh, interchanging ideas that we're accepted in community. Uh, they are involved in different pursuits with my husband. Uh, they're going dirt bike riding and kayaking. They went last week. Uh, my husband has loads of motorcycles that one of my boys wants to go ahead and do, which I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. So they're into all kinds of physical activities. Uh, we have friends that we relate more to our lifestyle friends than our age friends, because that's where we really are. Uh, so yes, if we're talking about a 20-year difference, today what's different 20 years is very different than what it used to be 20 years, because there is that longevity factor and that health factor that we didn't have 20 years ago. So do we look older? Yes. Do we not fit in? We do fit in. And our children fit in as well. We go on trips with the parents. Uh, they have lots of friends. Uh, we have, I have never been called grandma. And as I said, you know, women can look younger, older, and they're having babies later because of education, and infertility. So women are no longer defined uh, as far as their infertility, pretty much uh, the same way men are not defined with that because they can have children later. But the most important thing is longevity and health are for my children. And they're doing well and they're happy with us and they do not see anything different except technically. uh, But that doesn't apply only to me. It applies to people in their 40s, too, that a technology is something that's new, where they were born with it. So it's a very easy thing for them to help me if I have difficulty with a podcast or something. They'll come in, they'll push a few buttons, and it'll be over with. And I'm trying to figure it out, which I never will. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so that's the difference. But I don't think it's generational as much, you know, with the other people as much as the factor that the generations have changed because of technology are more than the age itself. So uh, you alluded to it that, that people are having kids maybe later in life or having fewer kids or making decisions along those lines. What do you see as the, be- the cons and the pros of, of, of approaching it that way? You have to want to have children. You have to know that uh, they will have a good life. You have to be able to afford having children. 
having a game plan. That's the most important thing, even more than the age. There are people who are on drugs. There are people who have had bad parenting skills, have issues of their own. And that's, those are the people we need to really look at and see. I'm going to be around to see my boys through high school, through college, and through early adulthood. And they're going to be mature, and they're going to have all their needs met. So there's not going to be a deficit. But to go back to what a healthy parent is, uh, that's somebody who's healthy to begin with, to give their children, you know, fill in all the needs that children have to have, uh, which is love, nurturing, support, and provide a good uh, family lifestyle. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So you mentioned sort of technology as being an aspect where, you know, your kids are helping you. With technology, I think people think about social media because the two, I think, go hand in hand. How has social media affected you as a parent? Uh, As a parent, social media, on a personal level, I don't really feel it's affected me at all because I'm not involved with it. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, you know, I hate to say it, I really don't have anything that has interfered or changed uh, my lifestyle because I'm not involved with uh, Facebook or or Twitter or any of that stuff. To me, it's very time-consuming. To me, it's superficial. To me, it's not getting to really know the person. I need to have people that I can connect to on a face-to-face value. Now, I do have for therapy, people are Zooming me and they're more comfortable uh, doing so, but it's different because I really get to know uh, the intricate parts of who they are. So it's not as superficial as social media. Okay. So what have you learned as being uh, an older parent? Like what's different than being a a younger parent? Because you have other kids too, right? I have older kids and uh, Perfection is not really in the game plan here with kids. I have teenagers now. The twins are teenagers. And one of them, you know, the things they listen to, the music, you know, and and my generation, Elvis Presley, because he rocked his hips or something, that was uh, sensationalism. Today, the words are unbelievable. They're talking about body parts and, and whatever that is. And so that's a stage that has affected the way I deal with them, and that is the teenagers. So they have different types of music. They have different types of viewpoints. They have different ways of dressing. So it has not really uh, taken a precedence over where they really are. And as teenagers, I expect them to be that way, because otherwise, if they don't speak out, if they don't have conflict, they end up seeing people like me when they get to be adults because they're repressed. So I let them do whatever there is. The older set of children that I do have, maybe like most parents, I was more intense. I wanted to do all the right thing. You know, the firstborn a child is usually more intense because the parents are micromanaging on top of them. They're less relaxed. They're more responsible. And the youngest of their family is often the most spirited and carefree because the parents are more like that. So that's sort of changed with the events of where my children were, uh, depending on the order of where they were born more than anything else. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Dr. Etienne Vachon-Passot, Melissa Cameron, and Dr. Frida Birnbaum. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.